How do we know what we know about history? The artifacts that are left behind tell us a story about the past. But even the fact that some events are noted and others are omitted is revealing. What do we need to know to put history in context? French writer and philosopher Voltaire wrote that history is the study of all the world's crime. In today's episode, we'll look at several ways the death of Thomas Arden of Feversham is immortalized in the Museum of Artistic Creation, and consider how each reveals a new way to understand history and true crime. This is A Killing in Kent, a podcast on the fascinating life and confounding death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. Recording events of the past sometimes happens in official documents, like the Hollandshed Chronicles or the Wardmote Book, where narratives have been written to provide a history for posterity. But another equally important element of historical documentation happens through art. In previous episodes, we've looked at how the anonymous play Arden of Feversham portrayed the tragic events of 1551. In this final episode, we're going to explore how the story was captured in a popular ballad, learn about a visual depiction of Thomas Arden's murder, and find out more about the staging of a puppet show of the account. In episode one, we learned about the ballad, the complaint and lamentation of Mistress Arden of Feversham in Kent, who, for the love of one Mosby, hired certain ruffians and villains most cruelly to murder her husband with the fatal end of her and her associates. It may seem strange to have a song tell the story of a murder, but back in the 1600s, it was actually a popular style of song called a murder ballad. Here's how it worked. A lyricist would write the story and get it printed on a single sheet of paper called a broadside, like a newspaper size, but only printed on one side. The writer would usually spell out which well-known tune the song should be sung to. In the case of The Complaint and Lamentation of Mistress Arden, the tune is Fortune My Foe, but more on that later. Christopher Marsh, a professor of history at Queen's University, Belfast, explains the broadsheets were typically published in London and then, quote, distributed through the capital and the country beyond by ballad singers who perform them in public spaces, aiming to draw a crowd, end quote. Listeners would be captivated by the stories and songs, and the broadsheets were sold for about a penny apiece so that people could sing them again and again among their friends. Who sang them? Marsh explains that these ballads were popular in a lot of different contexts. Sometimes they'd be sung at public executions, or by people in alehouses, where sometimes the broadsheets were hung on the walls, or servants entertaining each other after work, and sometimes, Marsh explains, by people at work, particularly laborers like milkmaids and weavers whose work had a rhythmic aspect. 
The complaint and lamentation of Mistress Arden is unusual in at least one way. According to Marsh, a typical murder ballad had between 12 and 20 verses. Maybe it's because the whole Arden murder story is so complicated, but it took 48 verses to tell. It is meant to be sung to the tune of Fortune My Foe, which Christopher Marsh calls the English supertune of the time. You may not know the song, but we use the melody for the theme music for this podcast. So, what makes Fortune My Foe so great? Marsh explains that there are several reasons. First, he says, the song is only four lines long and has just seven notes. He describes it as strong and simple in rhythm. And the meter of the song was unusual, suited for four-line verses with ten syllables per line. For those of you who understand music, here's Marsh's more detailed explanation. The song was, quote, dominated by repeated notes and short steps rather than more ambitious jumps. 34 of the tune's 38 notes are followed by a repeated note or by movement to an adjacent note. It was repetitive, opening with a double rendition of the same line. End quote. Marsh explains that each line of the song ends with a half note followed by two quarter notes. And unlike most ballads, it has a high proportion of whole notes and half notes. These qualities, in combination, create a musical earworm. Music psychologist Lauren Stewart explains that our brains respond to tunes with simple ups and downs, like in Fortune My Foe. And these songs get lodged further in our minds with frequent exposure. It seems that people in the 1700s got plenty of exposure to Fortune My Foe. It was such a popular tune for ballads relating the stories of executed criminals that it was dubbed the Hanging Tune. We don't know who wrote the song, because of the fact that authors weren't typically printed on the broadsheets. Another unknown artist who contributed to the broadsheet of The Complaint and Lamentation of Mistress Arden is the person who created the image which accompanied the lyrics. The broadsheets of murder ballads typically featured one or more woodcut illustrations below the title. In this case, there's only one illustration, and it depicts the final attempt on Arden's life. Arden is seen seated at a stool in the center of the image, and to his right is the table with the backgammon boards. On the other side of the table sits a smug-looking Mosby, fashionably dressed, all in black, and making his final move on the board. Behind Arden is Black Will, recognizable because of his black hat, and the fact that he is strangling Arden with a towel as he drags him to the ground. Four other figures also appear. Two women, one of them Alice, and the other of them Susan, the servant, and two men, Michael the servant and Shakebag. All four of them carry knives or swords, ready to stab Arden to death. Looking at this image makes the story come to life, and also gives us a glimpse of fashion in 1550s England. We can see what people wore back then, the doublets and breeches for men, and the women's petticoats and gowns and headdresses. The woodcut shows us the silhouettes people wore then, 
and also the decorative flourishes that distinguished the wealthy from the lower class. It's an amazing artifact, even more so given that, according to scholar Catherine Richardson, it's likely the woodcut was produced by a craftsman who would have been more accustomed to carving furniture than figure drawing. The ballad woodcut also accompanied later editions of the play, as it was a vivid depiction of the most dramatic moment of the action. But wouldn't it be something if we could look back in the past and see the actual costumes worn by the actors who first dramatized Arden of Feversham? To see their faces as they acted out the drama? Well, in some way, we can. Not the live performers, no, but this story was so popular that it was performed in marionette shows throughout the 18th century. Marionettes, some of which still exist in museums today. Traveling theater troops like Middleton's and Henry Collier's used marionettes to tell the Arden story. Scholar John McCormick believes that puppeteers used an old and unpublished text which was passed down through companies. Two different versions of the puppet scripts have survived. They are different in which parts were cut and what additional material was added. One has a prologue. The Collier script, dated sometime around 1739, was printed in a pamphlet which advertised how close his text was to the original play. Interestingly, the cover of the pamphlet has a drawing that is very similar to the original woodcut, a group of people around a game of tables, but is instead a depiction of the Collier puppets in 18th century costumes. I'm particularly interested in telling the story of Alice and Arden with puppets. Certainly audiences would have been used to this medium, with Punch and Judy shows being popular in England since the first troops traveled from Italy right after the Restoration. Punch and Judy marionette shows became incredibly popular in the early 1700s, so audiences were accustomed to enjoying violent puppets. There's something about seeing Arden's story play out with puppets that allows audiences to relax a little and enjoy the farce. The plot wouldn't have to change at all, but seeing puppets flirting and kissing and sword fighting and stabbing someone to death, add in the ridiculously complicated murder plots as the murderers get foiled over and over, seems perfect for puppets. Yes, sometimes the goal of puppet shows is to have audiences forget that puppets aren't people. But with a show like Arden of Feversham, it's easy to imagine how a puppet troupe would have played up the violence and bungled murder attempts for laughs. But while the Punch and Judy shows allowed audiences the gleeful enjoyment of violent acts without consequences, Arden of Feversham ends with a message on the perils of such immoral behavior more fitting for a true crime drama. So how do the play and ballad fit with today's true crime podcasts? On a surface level, it's easy to see the connection. The action of the play is true crime, an exploration of the perpetrator's motives and the obstacles they encountered. But shortly after the murder is committed, the play is over. It's like an episode of Columbo, but one where the murderer confesses as soon as they're questioned. Unlike with a crime podcast, there's no need to piece together evidence because we've just watched it unfold. We already have a tidy, dramatic arc. On the surface, Arden of Feversham and true crime podcasts also both seem to share entertainment as their purpose. But do they? 
Many podcasters take on unsolved cases or those where someone may have been wrongfully convicted. In those cases, the podcasters take on the job of an investigative reporter, sometimes even hiring private investigators to uncover fresh evidence. In the best-case scenario, their work brings resolution to a cold case or corrects a mistake. Even those podcasters who don't change the course of a case can have a purpose beyond entertainment. Some would say that their aim is to prod listeners to consider the shortcomings and flaws of the criminal justice system. I don't believe that Arden F. Eversham had a similar effect on its original audiences. People today may critique the limited opportunities for women in the 16th century relating to marriage and divorce, but I don't believe most in the original audience would have. I suppose one thing that unites audiences across the centuries is their fascination with unusual stories like Alice's. After all, Alice is the instigator, not the recipient of the violence in her marriage. And now, just like then, we're captivated by stories of love gone wrong, of lives that are messier and more awful than our own. What happened then could easily be in the headlines today. There are no happy endings for stories like these, but we can witness them in the artistic artifacts that have been immortalized for posterity and hopefully learn from them. We hope you've enjoyed diving into the story of Arden of Feversham and learning more about the characters, the motives, and the consequences. As we explore the historical sources, the social context, and the artistic representation, we can see that this crime has had a lasting impact. Pulitzer and Nobel-winning author Pearl Buck wrote that if you want to understand today, you have to search yesterday. Perhaps by searching into the lives and deaths of Arden, Alice, Mosby, and the rest, we can reveal new lessons which can help us better understand the world we live in today. Thank you for listening to A Killing in Kent, The Fascinating Life and Confounding Death of Thomas Arden of Feversham. I'm your host, Diane Rayo Harmon. This show is produced by Jeff Harmon, with theme music by Harold Bryce Harmon. <laughs>